the Christ in the book of Mark. You may have already noted that that title is the one I have devoted and given to the lesson this morning with the hope that you and I might at least take a few interesting lessons from it and use them in a way that can be a great blessing to not only ourselves, but yea, so many who are around us. Now, one of the things about the Word of God, as this opening slide will at least remind you and me, is that it is an amazing thing to consider the gospel accounts, for they detail for you and me by far the greatest person to ever have walked this planet, Jesus the Christ. He never made a mistake. Perfect in judgment, perfect in deed and in thought and in, and in word, and yet all of that is a reminder of some of the encouragement given to you and me. Isn't it said in Colossians 1.27, Christ in you, the hope of glory? Aren't we reminded in Philippians 2 verse 5, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ? So isn't it true that one of the great challenges that you and I face, and yet it's a blessing at the same time, if you and I want to be like Christ, we would do well to reflect on the gospel accounts and ask, well, what was He like? What did He do in various circumstances? And perhaps that can serve as a wonderful motivation for you and me. And so I thought this morning what we would do is we would, in fact, step our way through the book of Mark. We will pick one point out of each chapter, something about the Christ, and we'll make an application to your life and to mine and see if our mind is supposed to be like His, what was His like? You may notice about the middle of that slide that the book of Mark is a bit unique in some ways among the gospel accounts because it was written originally for the benefit of the Roman. And that meant that, of course, the Romans were the kind of people who didn't beat around the bush. Get to the point, say what you got to say. And that's what Mark did. And so he highlighted the Lord's actions. He highlighted what it was the Lord did. In fact, the book of Mark, though the shortest of the gospel accounts, it records the most of his miracles. So today, why don't we then reflect like a Roman would on the character of the Lord's actions, and in so doing, what are some highlights out of each chapter that you and I can use for ourselves? Chapter number 1. Verse number 35 makes this observation. Jesus rose up early a great while before day and went out to a solitary place, and there He entered into prayer. I would suppose that that by itself is a magnificent emphasis to this truth. He was the Son of God. He was infinite in wisdom, great in power, access to the Holy Spirit, and yet He found it needful to pray. If Jesus was a man given to prayer with all the blessings and benefits He had, what does that say about me? And what would that in imply about you? Should you and I not be given to prayer? Those who rely upon it, those who are frequently found in it, is it any wonder that Paul would later write, Pray without ceasing, 1 Thessalonians 5.17. And aren't we reminded in Luke 18.1 that men ought always to pray and not to faint. Could it well be that some of the times when you and I falter and faint is because we didn't pray enough? That we didn't, in fact, give enough attention and earnestness to prayer? Maybe that text in Mark 1.35 is a reminder our Lord was earnest and fervent even early in prayer. What about chapter 2? What might be a lesson we glean about the Master from that chapter? Is it not this? 
Mark 2, verse 5. You recall the setting. There was a man who himself was afflicted with the sick of the palsy. He was a paralyzed man, and he had four friends who exerted the effort to bring him up to a roof, removed a sufficient amount of it, and lowered the, this man right before Jesus. Now, the fact is that there was a great throng of people around Jesus, and that's why they couldn't just come through the door. But Jesus made an amazing statement to those four friends. In their place and in their presence, Jesus addressed that paralyzed man and pronounced his sins forgiven. I would suggest to you that that is a rather amazing teaching about the deity of Jesus. Let's face it, sin is against God. We learned that lesson, of course, as early as Genesis 39. Even Joseph said, how can I do this thing and sin against God? Didn't Peter make that similar statement in Acts chapter 5 in light of Ananias and Sapphira? If God's the one against whom sin is committed, and yet if the Lord could pronounce forgiveness of sins, did that not mean that He was divine, that He was deity? And so it was. On so many additional occasions in the Word of God, we find Jesus doing things that only God can do, such as receiving worship. How often did folks fall before Him in worship and the Lord never corrected them? Because God is to be worshipped, Matthew 4 verse 10. This little reminder, although Jesus did heal that man physically, He was able to walk His way away from that moment. Jesus also forgave His sins. Today, aren't we thankful the Lord can still forgive our sins? And His blood is still as powerful and has the capacity to cleanse all of our sins. 1 John 1 verse 7 says, If we walk in the light... As He is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ His Son cleanseth us from all sin. What a wonderful teaching. Chapter 3. As you and I turn the page into chapter 3, could I suggest to you the Lord was a man of logic? May you, may you and I not allow that thought to pass us by too quickly. I realize there are some in the religious world who, in fact, will assert that those who are given to religion and those who believe in the Bible are not very rational. May you and I never believe that. Jesus was the preeminent example of a man who was given to proper thinking. You recall that he, in fact, had just done some more great works, and yet those religious leaders said, this man casts out demons by Beelzebub. Jesus immediately reacted to that and said, How can Satan cast out Satan? If Beelzebub is the power of Satan, and if I'm casting out Satan by the power of Satan, what sense does that make? He went on immediately to say that a kingdom divided against itself shall not stand. And in the next verse, a house divided against itself again shall not stand. The Lord crushed their logic was superior logic. And today, might you and I remember, the Lord still says in Isaiah 1.18, Come now, let us reason together, saith the Lord. You and I are not asked by the Lord to leave our thinking and decision-making at the door when we serve Him. He asks that we employ all the powers of thought and wisdom and knowledge and rationality and to serve Him, understanding that that is the right 
the proper, the reasonable way to do it. The Lord was a man of logic. What about chapter 4? Isn't it true that we learn He was a man of power? Among the things that could easily be observed, you recall with me that as chapter 4 ends, Jesus was asleep on a pillow in a ship. And a storm was raging outside the bounds of that ship. And in fact, the apostles were quite fearful for their lives. They went to wake up the Master and said, Carest thou not that we perish? The text tells us that the waves, in fact, were, were sufficiently large. They were even coming over the sides of the ship. And Jesus was asleep on a pillow. But you know, when they awoke Him, He rebuked their smallness and faith. But then the text says, He spoke to the wind, He spoke to the waves, and immediately a calm came over it. And it so impressed those apostles and even the others who witnessed it that they were quick to appreciate the fact that a great one was in their midst. Jesus was a man of power. It's quite often, isn't it true, in the gospel accounts that we see He had control over diseases. He could even raise Lazarus from the dead in John chapter 11. He had control over the blind man's blindness in John chapter 9. He brought sight to that man. But not only matters that relate to the human body, He had power over natural things like storms. Here, the Lord calmed that storm. And He did so with immediacy. Isn't that a reminder that the Lord's power extends, you see, into anything you and I might face in life? He can bring calmness. He can bring the proper approach toward it. And He can see us through it to the other side. It's a bit fascinating to reflect on how often He illustrated and exhibited greatness over the particulars of life. In chapter number 5, that's going to take another form. You will recall the scene, and how often would you and I be given to fearfulness in a case like this? Jesus crossed over that sea and came into the region of the Gadarenes, that area known as Gadara. And there was a man who came out to meet him. And this was an unusual man. You recall, he lived in the tombs. They had tried to bind him with chains, but to no avail. He simply broke those fetters that were used, and he cried day and night. And the reason was, he was afflicted with a demon. He was a demon-possessed man, and you could imagine, if someone came out to meet you this way, wouldn't you be afraid? And yet Jesus carried on conversation with him. Jesus cast out the demon. I use all that to say our Lord was a preeminent man of caring. You see, He had concern for this man. It's a bit fascinating to notice. It seems others again had tried to bind Him, maybe because they thought He was an injurious person even to Himself. Because the text did say He cut Himself with stones. But yet the Lord didn't allow that kind of behavior to deter him. He was concerned about this man. The attribute of concern, the attribute of caring, could I not say that not only was that matter so easily seen, isn't it one that we find all throughout the gospel accounts? When the Syrophoenician woman in Mark 7 came before Jesus, notice again the kind of care that the Lord stated with regard to her. 
today, let's bring that point home. Jesus didn't just merely care for someone living in the tombs like this. He cares for you and for me personally and individually. In 1 Peter 5 verse 7, Casting all your care upon Him, for He careth for you. May you and I never allow the thought to cross our mind that for some reason the Lord doesn't care. That for some reason He's uninterested in me. Because that isn't true. He cares so much He went to the cross for you and me. Shedding His blood for you and me. And He wants our life here to be the best it can be, but far of greater in significance, the life beyond. In Psalm 55 verse 22, didn't the ancient writer say, speaking again about the care of the God of heaven, that care so wonderfully highlighted. Again, if David could say that, what about the circumstance of the day to day? Chapter 6, our Lord was a man of tremendous compassion. Notice verses 33 and following. You might recall with me there that one more time Jesus had been in a position of instruction and teaching and a large multitude had come but they didn't have enough to eat. Rather than send them away, under fear that they might faint in the way, the Lord proceeded to feed 5,000 men, not counting the women and children. But that was motivated in part by His compassion upon them. The text expressly says in verse 34, He was moved with compassion. You and I today, could we ask it this way, should we not be compassionate? That is to say, in 1 Peter 3, verse 8, aren't we commanded that we too should be molded and at least bothered by the concerns and the issues that sometimes can face those that we love and even others? Our Lord was compassionate. So far through six chapters, we have noticed a number of matters and how sweet in many ways they have been. Chapter number 7 is one that perhaps will always be a great challenge to all of us. Because of its verse 37 of that chapter, the Lord was a man of perfection. I would suspect that you and I perhaps have known many people who could do a lot of things well. But it's also fair to say you've never known anybody that can do everything well. But yet Jesus could. Wouldn't it have been interesting to be His next door neighbor? Wouldn't it have been something to be present on many occasions and watch Him do various things? The text says in Mark 7, 37, He hath done all things well. At this point, when you and I then have an interest in always knowing the thing that's right, we need to look at how, what He did. What did He think about it? What wording did He use? What perspective did He take? because we know He never did anything wrong. Jesus did everything well. Later on in the New Testament, that forms a powerful understanding for books like the book of Hebrews, which in chapter 4 verse 15 says, We have not an high priest that cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. Doesn't that then mean, among other things, this? When you and I face matters of trial and temptation, we can always rest assured that He can give us the proper insight and wisdom to know how to react in those situations because He never sinned. Chapter number 8, 
verses 36 and 37. A man of proper values. And by that I mean this. Through life, it is incredibly vital and crucial to appreciate proper values. And yet Jesus illustrated it among other ways like this. This particular verse, this paraverse is really, is one that has so often been a matter of reflection and may it ever be so. For in those verses, Jesus, in the midst of those of that day, and by way of inspiration to us, He still says, What shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? You and I can labor and work and give investment to so many things in life, and in and of themselves there may be nothing improper in it. But the thing of greatest priority... The matter of greatest import must never be forgotten. Whatever we gain here, it pales in comparison to the worth of our soul. What will a man give in exchange for his soul? Isn't that the Lord's way of reminding us, be it money, prestige, fame, notoriety, power, anything else? Our soul, the safeguarding and safekeeping of it, that is the greatest of significances. Jesus taught that on that occasion. Let's roll into chapter 9. When you and I have a desire to ask what the Master's like, in chapter number 9, the closing paragraph reads it like this. Jesus Himself took the position and spoke with great intrigue about the reality of a place called hell. We just learned in chapter 8 about proper values. Well, that takes on great significance when we realize the single most noted person who ever taught about hell is Jesus. He talked about it more than any other New Testament individual. And here, He pointed out it's a, pl- it's a place where the flames never quenched, the fires never quenched. And it's a place where the worm doesn't die. And it's a place, you see, where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Absolutely real. It's not a figment of anybody's imagination. It's not a hallucination of some kind. It is not merely this made-up place where so-called religionists like to stamp their way of looking at things on people. The person who walked this planet and talked the most about it is Jesus. Now, you and I should take a great deal of intrigue in that because if anyone ever actually knew about it, it was Him. He knew the place was real. He knew what it was like. And He gave such great effort to try and remind all of us enough to where we wouldn't go there. In that set of verses in Mark chapter 9, there's a great admonishment then in the verse that follows it that draws this conclusion. You and I need to be the salt of the earth. You and I need to be the light of the world. You and I need to be the city set on a hill. You see, if we're all of those, we're not going to be of that position to find ourselves in the place where the worm doesn't die and the fire isn't quenched. When Jesus spoke about that place, could we at least add another consideration? And that's this. When one gives thought to the Old Testament, now the Old Testament doesn't reveal a great number of details about hell. Oh, it's true, there are a few innocent statements, and there are some things about it. 
But as far as the greatness of its teaching, very little is found in the Old Testament. But yeah, on the scene comes Jesus and Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And it's almost as if He comes with the greatness of the desire of the Father to remind people that there is a place like this. And I don't want you to go there. But I will leave the choice to you. I'll let you make your own decision. And so, in so many other places, the Lord would speak about the opposite place to this, and that's heaven. A place whose sweetness, whose bliss, whose glory, whose fantastic pleasure is beyond imagination in many ways. Mark chapter number 10. As you come to chapter 10 with me, that was the lesson text that Brother Colonel read just a few minutes ago in verses 44 and 45. You might recall in the midst of that discussion, Jesus Himself would say this, The Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and give His life a ransom for many. Jesus said, I didn't come for everybody else to serve me. It's true, He was a king. It's true, He is in Lord of Lords. It's true that He is the very God of heaven. But He said, I didn't come to be served. I came to serve. Doesn't that remind us the Christian life is one of service? Aren't we told in Matthew 25 that to those who are granted that marvelous entrance on that wonderful and sweet day of judgment, it's to those who said, You saw me hungry and you gave me something to eat. You visited me in prison. You gave me water to drink. When I was sick, you came to me. And as the Lord makes those reminders and statements, it's those who have served the Master. And so today, just as the Lord came, not Himself to be served, but to serve, He says, that's our charge, that's our lot. No wonder the Christian life is then such a life that is an appealing one in that way. It's not a life of selfishness, but selflessness. In Colossians 3 verse 12, isn't it highlighted in precisely that way? Jesus came, you see, to serve. As you and I turn the page into chapter number 11, if we want to be like the Master, what else was He like? In verses 27 and following of this marvelous chapter, we find His impression of authority. Jesus had a great deal of respect for authority. You might recall that there were those religionists who came to Him and said, after He had just turned over the money changers' tables and drove out the animals that were in the temple, and they said, Who gave you the authority to do this? Jesus didn't insult them for asking the question. He merely replied by saying, I'll ask you a question, and if you can answer my question, I'll tell you by what authority I do these things. And he asked them about the baptism of John. Was it from heaven or of men? And you and I well remember, they chose not to answer. Because they argued like this. If we say it's from heaven, he's going to say, well, why didn't you believe him then? Why didn't you obey him? But on the other hand, they appreciated the fact, if we say it's of men, we're going to be discounted among the people because they honored John as a prophet. And so they told Jesus, we can't tell. Jesus said, Neither tell I you by what authority I do these things. 
But you'll notice the Lord had an impressive respect for authority. And didn't He at that point set before us a clear and marvelous teaching for all time, everything in the name of religion either is of heaven or of men. There is no third option. There is no third possibility. And isn't it interesting how you and I then rely upon the authority of heaven? Later on, Paul would put it in words like this in Colossians 3.17, Whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to the God and the Father by Him. Authority is critical. Jesus taught us that in Mark 11, didn't He? Mark chapter 12, Lord, what do you like? Note verse number 30. Jesus was a man who would highlight the beautiful avenue of love. The greatest commandment is this, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. And the second commandment is like to it, Love thy neighbor as thyself. The greatest two commandments surround and beautifully exemplify love. Jesus taught us that. May I suggest to you then in that connection to Mark 12 verse 30, that emphasis upon love one more time, isn't that a matter that is thus detailed in so many later New Testament verses? In Mark chapter 13, what's he like? You'll notice in that 13th chapter, verses 31 and 32, speaking about the matter of love, we now find an emphasis on the Word of God. In those two verses, we find Jesus making this unforgettable statement. As He set before them the Word of God, He then would say, My words shall not pass away. It's true, isn't it? The words of men, they rise and they fall. They come and they go. They wax and they wane. The words of men, you see, are often fraught with mistakes. Even though our judgment may be the best that we can offer, we often find that which our words involve may turn out to be completely incorrect. Jesus said, My word shall not pass away. Now, in the context of Mark 30, or rather Matthew 30, chapter 24, that takes on a remarkable meaning as it relates to the destruction of Jerusalem. In this context, of course, it'll have a bearing even on the matter of the judgment. Isn't it still an issue of tremendous weight to think that this book is going to be opened on the day of judgment? It's this book. It won't be the Constitution of the United States. It won't be the Declaration of Independence. It won't be those articles that some other nation has for the matter consisting of their civic authority. But when the books are opened, Revelation 20, verse 11, Jesus put it like this in John 12, 48, He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my word hath one that judgeth him the word that I have spoken. The same shall judge him in the last day. This is going to be open to the judgment. I wonder how my life is going to appear with respect to it as the standard. And what about yours? My words will not pass away, the Lord said. In 1 Peter 1.25, another statement along that line is made, The word of the Lord endureth forever. With all that taken into heart, what about chapter 14? Speaking about the Master, what do we learn about Him here? A man of determination. 
a man of impressive determination. You might recall with me in Mark 14, specifically verse 50, all the apostles, they fled. When he was arrested, they were fearful for their lives and they fled. But our Lord was faithful. There was a charge that had been given to him. That charge, of course, concerning the matter of the will of God. And Jesus was dutiful. He was determined, although forsaken by all. Today, could I offer the thought that you and I too in the New Testament are commanded to be perseverant, to be faithful, to be those who even though others around us may choose to live in ways that are ungodly and may well persecute us because we will not agree with them. May we too be faithful. May we realize that the entirety of the reason for that faith of the Christ is what motivates for us to realize that what is beyond is well worth the inconveniences that we may face here. When the dedication of the Lord is highlighted in ways like that, doesn't it remind us of that summarizing passage in Revelation 2? Be thou faithful unto death. Now it's surely true that that church at Smyrna even earlier in that same verse, they were told, you, some of you, will be cast into prison. How would you and I like to hear that? For the Lord to directly say, you know what? Some of you, in faith to me, are going to be imprisoned for ten days. I'm persuaded that number ten was a figurative word. We don't know the length of the duration of the imprisonment. But they were told, be faithful till death. I'll give you the crown of life. That should be a motivation for us as well. What about Mark chapter 15? We now realize we've come to that point in the Lord's life. The hours of Gethsemane have come and gone. He's now going to be nailed to a cross. His life on this earth is almost over. But yet we still learn dramatic lessons even in this course of His life. Submission. Here was one who himself admitted, I could call twelve legions of angels to deliver me from this moment. But he didn't. He allowed them to drive nails into his hands and feet. He allowed them to make a mockery of what he was enduring by casting lots for his clothes. He allowed them to put this mockery of a robe on him and to put a crown of thorns on his head. Not a crown of gold, mind you. That would have been far more deserved, but a crown of thorns. And he tolerated all of it because he was submissive to the Father's will. Had he not prayed in Gethsemane just a few hours earlier, let this cup pass from me, he would pray, but nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. Matthew 26, verses 39 to 42. No wonder then, just a few hours Later than these events, one of the last things he ever said was this, It is finished. It refers to the will of God concerning the execution for the reason he came, the plan of redemption. It is finished. Aren't you and I thankful he submitted to the will of God? And isn't that a reminder that you and I should too, to ever be submissive to the Father's will? In that connection, I ask you to notice Ephesians 5.21. 
as well as Philippians 2 verse 3. As we come to the closing chapter of the book of Mark, only one more. And to some extent, I thought it would be a very powerful way to conclude this brief lesson, looking at verses like Mark 16, 9. The Lord was triumphant. Oh, it's true that they had killed Him, and they had placed that body in a tomb, but Sunday morning came. And the women came and found the stone rolled away, and the Lord's body wasn't there. And the angel himself said, You seek Jesus, but He isn't here. He's risen. A life of triumph and victory. From this chapter, could I suggest that that kind of idea is certainly a very appealing one to us. We like to be the winner. And yet, through the New Testament, we're told that to those who are faithful to the Lord, they shall be the winners. Jesus said, I have overcome the world. He said that. The later New Testament writers like John reaffirmed the same thing. And thus, if we connect to Him and we tie on to Him and we hold to His hand, we too, through Him, can be just as victorious as He. In 1 Corinthians 15, verses 20 and following, He was the first fruits of those that were risen. You and I in faith shall follow. In that connection, 2 Corinthians 2.14 says, We are always led in in triumph in Christ. That's fascinating. We are always led in triumph in Christ. Today, as we close this lesson, we close the book of Mark with this brief consideration from each chapter, may I suggest to you, that the book of Mark has been a motivation, just as Matthew, Luke, and John could be. But we've taken one point from each chapter as a reminder to help us understand better the Christ, what He was like, what did He think, how did He act. All those things you see that we've learned about Him could be characteristic of us. They should be. Everything from prayer in chapter 1 to triumphant in chapter 16. Today, as you and I analyze our life, where do we stand? Are we connected to the one who could be described like this? Or are we trying to go it alone? We're destined to fall if we try to go it alone. Didn't Jeremiah put it like this? Or rather, as God threw him, Jeremiah 10, 23, I know the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man that walketh to direct his steps. Today, as you and I then examine ourselves, whether we be in the faith, if there's someone in this assembly today that's separate and apart from Christ, it's not because He has wanted it to be that way. It's because you've chosen it. If there's someone that would need to render initial obedience to the gospel, the Lord commands you to believe in Him as a Son of God. Repent of your sins, confess His matchless name as a Son of God, and be baptized for the remission of your sins. If you need to come back to your first love today, His blood is still flowing. You just need to have it contact you. You can do that through the avenue of prayer as you make repentance and confession of those things. And we would be earnestly desirous to help you, to encourage you, just as you could be an encouragement to us. This song of encouragement has been selected. As we stand and sing it, may I invite you to come just as the Lord would while together we stand and while we sing.